The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Honey, the tickets that check out us to Paris are here. First class. I don't think we should go. What? They're free tickets. No, they're not. Nothing is free. Those have strings attached. What strings? They're from Chuck. What are you talking about? You, you have to obey me. Yeah, I think that was in our vows. I am the husband, and I forbid us to go to Paris. That's it. Hi, hey. You forbid us? Are you kidding me, Devin? Ellie, hey, is everything okay? No, I think that there's something weird going on with Chuck and Devin. It's like they're, I don't know, they're keeping the secret from me. Are you suggesting Chuck is caught in a big, giant web of conspiracy and, and deception? I know. I know when you put it like that, it sounds ridiculous. Because I couldn't agree more. All right, I've been thinking about this for months. Finally, someone with some common sense. Morgan, we have to figure out what's going on. Don't worry about it. I got my best man on it. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 26, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, I'm not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. And, of course, you should also visit our website, where we archive all the past broadcasts of Just Right, at www.justrightmedia.org. And you can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Org. Anything you like on the show or don't like, let us know. If you think there's any subjects you'd like us to talk about, let us know. You never know. Might be the next show. We never do know. Now, last week, uh, Robert and I took a look at conspiracy theories in the first part of two shows we decided to do on the phenomenon. If you missed it out, again, check it online at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can always be able to hear every broadcast. But that's just our little conspiracy. Now, I think I might have on the air, Robert, I think I may have promised our listeners the moon last week in terms of we might be looking at the uh, did man land on the moon conspiracy, but that kind of got shoved off our plate this week because of some other things that came up. And uh, with that, I think I'll hand it over to you. What oh, you okay, Bob. Sure. <laughs> Very easy segue today. Sure. Um, I think what we're going to be talking about today is still a conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. but we're going to focus on... Well, I'm going to talk about the 9-11 conspiracy theory more, and you're going to be talking a little later on, I believe, about the New World Order. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just and I want to continue on what I start, start, we ended the show off with, the great conspirator philosophy. I took that a step further. Until, I thought that was particularly fascinating. So, it's something we should delve into mm-hmm. a little more, perhaps at a later show, is how the well, underlying philosophies of people actually contribute to the conspiracy theories one way or the other. Oh, yes. Fascinating subject. But... Um, 9-11 conspiracy theories, I think, actually dovetail, will probably dovetail well into the New World Order conspiracy theories because they are almost part and parcel of the same thing, and I'll get into that a little later. But 
over the last few weeks, I've been um, delving just a little deeper into this whole conspiracy thing about 9-11. But apart from the conspiracy itself, I found myself more interested in the process of trying to understand the information I've been discovering and assimilating it into some sort of coherent picture of truth, finding it very, very difficult. As with any conspiracy theory, there's always conflicting information. You take a picture of, a, usually a grainy picture of uh, something, <laughs> and you try to figure out what it is. There's always an official explanation, and then there's always the nefarious ulterior explanation, which has some sort of devious undertones to it, whether it's pictures of planes hitting the World Trade Center or UFOs or even perhaps the Zabruder film of JFK getting shot. Always lack of information, conflicting information, making it very difficult to form any sort of coherent uh, truth about the mm -hmm. entire event. The 9-11 conspiracy is basically called the inside job of 9-11. If you go on f online, you'll find dozens of videos and hundreds of websites devoted to ca casting doubt on the official version of the events of September 11th, 2001. And I found this actually very, very difficult to do. I, I actually remember I took all the newspapers from September 11th, 12th, 13th, that whole week, and I kept them in a box. And I never even looked at them until just last night. You, you know, I did the same thing. I, I left my uh, VCRs running that day when I went to work, and I put the tapes away, and I haven't looked at them yet. Isn't that weird? I don't know if it's weird or not. I find the whole thing rather disturbing. Well, I couldn't even no believe kidding. it. I, I tried to... Actually, um, I remember on September 11th, uh, 2001, you called me up at work. And you said, basically, I think World War III just started. <laughs> yeah. It was probably going to be hundreds of thousands of deaths. And this was just after the, the towers were hit. And, and I was shocked. And I actually just tried to go on business as usual. But uh, my coworkers, uh, employees, were saying, no, no, you've got to shut down the business. We've got to go home. We've got to watch this stuff. And reluctantly, I finally agreed. And then we just shut down the business, went home mm -hmm. and, and just sat in front of the TV and just watched the whole thing unfold. And it was that shock that I guess prevented me. It wasn't from like even... you were going to get a lot of business that day, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, business happens if, yeah. even if there are no customers. But no, I, I, I think it was that shock and awe that prevented me from ever revisiting the subject again until a couple of months ago, I happened upon a YouTube video um, by a man named Dave Von Kleist, and he had a he had a conspiracy video called In Plain Sight, and I think I I watched it with um, some sense of incredulity, but always nagging suspicions. And I called you up and I said, Bob, this is fascinating stuff, this 9/11 conspiracy stuff. And uh, didn't touch it again really until recently. We were still more talking about conspiracy theories, but whether it's In Plain Sight by Dave Van Cleest or um, Loose Change by Dylan Avery, or another video, 9-11 Chronicles Truth Rising by the professional conspiracist Alex Jones, or another one called 9-11 Press for Truth. All of these videos can be considered just one part of a debate. The other side of the debate is probably the side we've heard the most from. Now, this inside, oh, this side purports that 19 Muslim terror jihadists under the direction of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden hijacked four passenger jetliners, Two of these were flown into two towers, one and two, of the World Trade Center. Another was flown into the Pentagon, and the fourth crashed to the ground in Pennsylvania. 
Now, the overriding theme of the conspiracy videos appears to be casting doubt on every single aspect of the official version of 9-11. And I've contrasted the two here, just some of the major points. So, so are you saying then that you still consider that it's a debate, you said, you can still consider it open? I do. Mm, I don't know yeah. that I do. I, right, on, now, I, I... right now, I consider the official version to be the version that I'm going with. Okay. However... I'm leaving the room open for doubt, mainly because some of these, some of the facts that are on these videos are questionable, and I have questions. I don't have all the information. I'm still searching, so well, therefore there's always this, doubt. Could be by this time next week you do. Oh, <laughs> it perhaps. doesn't matter how much time you have to delve into it. Yeah, perhaps uh, weeks from now, perhaps years from now, I might come to a conclusion, or most people out there will come to a conclusion, as I think that they already have. Um, right now, and I'll get into why I believe what I do a little later, but first I want to contrast the official with the conspiracy. So, officially, four passenger planes were hijacked. Conspiracy, the planes were unmanned drones. Officially, 19 Muslims hijacked the planes. Conspiracy, most of these Muslims are still alive and have been accounted for. Officially, Towers 1 and 2 collapsed due to the massive damage and fire caused by the impact of the planes. Conspiracy. Towers 1 and 2 were collapsed by controlled demolition charges installed on the weekend before September the 11th. Officially, jihadists caused 9-11. Conspiracy. The American military-industrial complex, or the secret government, or George Bush, or the owner of the World Trade Center, caused 9-11. Officially, a plane crashed into the Pentagon. Conspiracy, a Tomahawk cruise missile actually hit the Pentagon. Officially, the hijacking of Flight 93 over Pennsylvania was foiled by heroic passengers. Conspiracy, Flight 93 was shot down by an American fighter. Officially, Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. Conspiracy, Flight 93, landed in Cleveland, where the passengers were deplaned, herded into a NASA hangar, and never heard from again. Officially, and this is the last, second last point, because <laughs> this could go on forever. It sure could. Officially, the, the, um, the plot was a lashing out by Muslims to bring jihad to America. Conspiracy, the plot was to cover up shady Wall Street insider trading and to loot the billions in gold stored under the Twin Towers. And finally, official version, World Trade Center number 7 collapsed due to massive damage caused by falling debris from the North Towers and the ensuing fires. Actually, the official version is just fires, but the consensus is that of, uh, damage contributed. Conspiracy, World Trade Center 7 was brought down by explosives so that the owner, Larry Silverstein, could cash in on the insurance and rebuild more modern towers. Like I say, this list can go on for quite some time. Well, i got to tell you, some of those conspiracy side of the list sounded pretty weak to me. And the, you also get multiple choice on that side where you don't get multiple choice on the other side. What's fascinating is some of the facts are more interesting than the motives that people ascribe right, yeah. to why the facts are the way they are. And when I was just talking about those conspiracy um, motives, they sound a little far-fetched. Um, but some of the facts can be very interesting, or what look like facts, mm -hmm. the, the, the visual stuff on the videos. Almost every aspect of the story on 9-11 has been denied or criticized by conspiracy theorists. 
And we're going to take a break here. And when I come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about um, why we have these conspiracy theorists. And then a little later on, we're going to talk about, um, if we've got time, a letter that we've gotten from uh, a loyal listener about World mm-hmm. Trade Center number seven. So we'll take a break. Now, well, before we do, just this, this first clip, I guess, is from Loose Change, eh? Dylan Avery? Yes. And then we're going to hear from CBC News World on the 9-11 um, conspiracy. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. On September 11th, 2006, thousands from all over the world gathered in New York City, New York. They wore black shirts, reading Investigate 9-11, and held banners that read, Ask Questions, Demand Answers. This day marked the fifth anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Although the 9-11 Commission report had been published over two years prior, many Americans and citizens worldwide remained convinced that the truth was being withheld from the public. Why was a growing percentage of the world population becoming increasingly skeptical of the events of September 11th? Was it a natural inclination towards believing the worst about the United States government? Or was it a legitimate concern that only grew more powerful with time? The 9-11 Truth Movement includes academics, engineers, physicists, firefighters, intelligence officials, and some of the very people whose lives have been shattered since September 11th. Were they all delirious, or were they a concerned group of individuals taking the necessary steps to prevent the United States from slipping into its darkest era yet? Was September 11th a surprise attack on America by 19 Islamic terrorists? Or something else entirely? phenomenon that is loose change has come to town because this is no longer a fringe conspiracy this is over half the american public that fully believe that the 9-11 commission is a cover-up at the very least we just know that we've been lied to in a big way and that's why we need a new investigation loose change claims a government conspiracy was behind the events of 9-11 and the ensuing wars in iraq and afghanistan Its makers say more than 100 million people have seen the film, making it one of the most viewed internet movies ever. Now there's a new version for the big screen. Conspiracies have become big business. Our entire foreign and domestic policy has been based upon the events of September 11th. It has enabled the passage of Patriot Act 1 and 2. Truth Movement is heavily centered on Building 7. Um, and for very good reason. Uh, a lot of people are very suspicious about what went down that day. Hidden behind the Twin Towers stood seven World Trade Center. On the outside, an unremarkable building, but it had some unusual occupants. The Secret Service, the CIA, the Department of Defense, and the Office of Emergency Management, which would coordinate any response to a disaster or a terrorist attack. 
you know, you have to look at what was inside Building 7. You had the largest CIA field office. You had a number of government agencies inside the building. So automatically, uh, for a number of people, myself included, that is enough to at least raise an eyebrow. Some say the government had to demolish Tower 7 because it's where plans were hatched for a massive conspiracy on 9-11. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Some think the attack on the Twin Towers was orchestrated by the Bush administration and the hijacked aeroplanes were guided to their targets from Tower 7. Others believe the government also wanted to destroy key files held there about corporate fraud. After its collapse, a CIA team is reported to have scoured the rubble looking for secret documents. It was the third tower to collapse that day, but its destruction was never mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report. And the first official inquiry into Tower 7 was unable to be definitive about what caused its collapse. Regardless of what you think actually happened to the building, it does look like and it does resemble a controlled demolition. And I do believe, as far as I know, that's the first time it's happened in architectural history. A steel high-rise building has collapsed simply because of damage and fire. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call at 519-661-3600 to join in on our conversation here. I think, we're that, talking... I think that last fact that we just heard was already disproven in a few anti-conspiracy theory sh shows I've seen. Right, that there's um, a particularly good uh, video and website out there called Screw Loose Change. Yes. By the way, I would recommend that people have a look at that. If they're going to be watching Loose Change, that's uh, a, a must to see. Maybe it would save them time just to watch the second one first. Cause, Actually, Because they yeah. literally play over... It's like, it's like a director's cut, you yeah. know? And they play over the first one, and then they explain what's wrong with each of these claims. Yeah, they basically stop the reel and say, wait a minute, yep. think of this. Wait a minute, think of that. Or as you're watching it, their argument is at the bottom of the screen. In subtitles, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was quite good. With all the spelling errors, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I went to university, and I have a degree in psychology, and whenever I think of when I think of conspiracy theories or anything like that, I always think of the psychological aspects of it, and I think I even covered those in the last mm. show. And uh, just watching those videos, I was uh, reminded of a psychology experiment I'd been taught in university. It was called the Ash Experiment. And to briefly summarize it, Bob, a subject is put into a room with others who he thinks are subjects but are, in fact, confederates with the experimenter. They're shown a number of lines, drawing lines on paper of various lengths. So he's the mark in the room, so to speak. The right? mark, the yeah. subject, actually. <laughs> and he doesn't know it, okay. He doesn't know it, no. Along with a, a reference line, they're shown, and asked to pick the line that is the same length as the reference line. It's a very simple task. The Confederate deliberately, the Confederates, right, they deliberately lie and choose lines that in no way resemble the reference line. It's quite obvious what, which lines match up, okay. but they lie. And they lie in front of the, uh, the subject. Now, even though the lines are considerably different, 35% of the subjects agree with the Confederates and give a exactly. false answer. The experiment demonstrated the power of group conformity. And that's what was going through my head when I was looking at these videos. As I watched, I was confronted with a barrage of people telling me something plainly conflicting with what I had known to be true. There was a part of me that wished to conform to the group, to blindly acquiesce to their position, to give in to my natural mistrust of government. But then I started to critically examine the data and found that much of what I was viewing was actually untrue. 
There were the blatant irrelevancies that uh, you and I over the phone said, oh, that, that dismiss half the movie right there because they're irrelevancies. Yes. They're hype, hyperbole. There was ad hominem attacks. And then, of course, the hard sell tactics worthy of a used car salesman. But amidst, amidst all of this, there were still nagging doubts and unexplained facts. Uh, you know, I would think if anyone wanted to convince you of a certain fact or two, that they would avoid all that other stuff. Right. And the fact that these people don't tells me, okay, you know, it's all BS. Right, that loose change <laughs> movie was two hours and nine minutes. Yeah. I would say that pre presentation of the facts alone probably would have taken about 20 minutes. Yeah. The rest of it was, like I say... Totally non-sequitur arguments, you know. Irrelevancies, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, a, a mutual friend of... Um, yours and I directed us to that screw loose change and I watched that and that's actually over a three hour yes. <laughs> video took presentation. took longer to, to, uh, <laughs> to do the counter argument. Yeah. But it's good though. It is. Now we received a letter from um, a listener, Glenn, who wanted to talk about the World Trade Center and, and took us to task, uh, me especially, I think because I talked about the World Trade Center, number seven buildings collapse on, last on the show. last week's show. Now, I used World Trade Center 7 as an example of how conflicting information gives rise to conspiracies. I picked four points from the conspiracy and gave four explanations that uh, were also given in a CBC documentary called The Passionate Eye. <clears throat> Excuse me, The Passionate Eye which talks specifically, the whole show was about the collapse of this 47-story building, World Trade Center number 7, which stood adjacent to the uh, uh, the two towers. Now, that's the building with the CIA in it, supposedly, and the government. Yeah, there was a number so. of government offices, CIA, emergency uh, uh, offices for the city of New York. Were see, actually I always thought a building that. like that would be pre-wired to be brought down in case of some emergency. That's what they do on Chuck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Every time they escape from their lair, they can blow it up behind them. They had to have that ready. <laughs> that's actually not a bad... Uh, that's actually an, an interesting point of view. You that, know, that you know, uh, you're building these skyscrapers that are so huge. I mean, I, you and I, on separate occasions, I guess, we actually visited the World Trade mm -hmm. Center. I was up on the observation deck. I think it's on the South Tower back in 86, around there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely awesome majesty of those buildings. Oh, the buildings were just remarkable. I have a movie about them too, or a, a documentary, just on the buildings before they were brought down. Yeah. Like just and when you go through New York, you wonder to yourself, how in the world will they ever, ever demolish these buildings come time when they need to be demolished, as, as all buildings do? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen the demolitions of a lot of skyscrapers before, but nothing as massive as those towers, or even a 47 tall buildings, story tall building that World Trade Center 7 was. How can you possibly do that? So to actually suggest that they're pre-wired for demolition is not so far-fetched. I mean, I don't know that they do well, that. I don't know about the Twin Towers, but certainly a, a tower with the CIA and government <laughs> documents in it. You'd think they'd have to get ready to run at a moment's notice. Sort of like a self-destruct yeah, mechanism. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not, that's like I say, that's not fair. That, that's plausible. That's within the realm of But then again, you see, I could, on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> that's conspiratorial yeah. right there. See how easy it is? Mm -hmm. Now, Glenn actually talks about a, a particular point and um, actually quite, quite well. And I'm going to have to get back to him in a little more detail when I find out more information about uh, World Trade Center 7. But uh, just, just briefly, I'm going to touch on a few points. For example, no other structure of similar construction has ever collapsed due to fire. My rebuttal? Until now. I mean, that's one, that's one way to look at it. 
it's not it's not absolutely necessary that that that, that the fire precludes the destruction of a building, the collapse of a tall story, forty seven story building. We don't know how often has the this, this kind of thing happened. The other thing too is that it's not just fire. There was physical damage to the building there and was in, impact and trauma there was so you add that to the mix plus other issues that are going on like i say the, the, the official explanation is fire mm-hmm. but i don't think they talk about the fact that there was structural damage now glenn says that it was insignificant but was it the, the building fell down was it really insignificant i'm not an expert in all these things i mean it, it's funny because i've actually blown up stuff in the military mm-hmm. i used uh, plastic explosives called DM-12 and debt cords and chop down trees with debt cords and stuff like that. I had a grand time, but I'm not an expert <laughs> okay. by no means. And, um, and we're not experts on this stuff. And so if the experts out there say that the building collapsed due to fire, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the government, and I'm, I'm not willing to take what the government tells me uh, tacitly without criticism. But until a better theory comes along, I'm going to take that one. Um, besides, if I saw a building with a chunk taken out of it in the corner, as World Trade Center 7 had, am I going to walk into that building? I'm not. No. Sorry. There's structural damage. I might think it's insignificant, but I don't know. And, Which again, uh, is, you know, tells, <laughs> reveals a lie that it's just a fire. Yes. It's not just a fire. Yeah. I mean, there's... <laughs> I don't know. Now, the CIA offices were destroyed, and other very important um, clandestine type of offices were destroyed. And Glenn, Glenn says, uh, in some way I agree with this, but Glenn says that that's irrelevant to the fact that the building is collapsed in a controlled explosion. Well, yes and no. I think if you're going to be purporting a particular conspiracy of such a magnitude as destroying a 47-story tall building in downtown Manhattan. You've got to consider and not gloss over the ramifications of what that means. Basically, it means it's possible that it may be a conspiracy, but it's more conceivable that the structural damage and fire caused the collapse. It's possible that these CIA offices were targeted for destruction. It's more likely that um, it just happened to happened to be there. I mean, downtown Manhattan's got lots of government offices and, and uh, offices like that. And for them to be there is not out of the ordinary. Besides, a conspiracy of this nature would require possibly hundreds of people planning, setting charges, covering up, etc. Where are they? How many people like that could keep a secret for this long? I, I don't. I, I can't see that that would happen. How could they work so quickly setting up the charges in the brief uh, seven hours or so between when the planes hit the uh, Towers 1 and 2 and World Trade Center uh, collapsed? Especially when the building's on fire. How are you going to get in there and set these charges in such a way that it collapses when demolitions of, of uh, similar buildings take months of planning, uh, take, take months of going in there, knocking out walls, setting these charges in just the right ways to make sure that it collapsed properly? So... There's a lot of these things that you just cannot say that, oh, the CIA offices are not a factor in the fact that the building collapsed when it goes to motive. Mm-hmm. And you cannot dismiss motive when you're talking about conspiracies. As a matter of fact, I think that's the whole point of a conspiracy is it goes to motive. So going to motive, we're going to take a break soon and you're well, going to introduce the clips yeah. here. What does it all mean? That's the question I want to deal with. And um, what we've got coming up, I... Uh, 
I had an old videotape. It was taped back in 1993. And um, I want people to be aware of the time in which this was spoken because we can look back now and evaluate the weight of what the speaker is saying. And the speaker is a fellow named Jeremy Lee who was a um, full-time lecturer for the Australian League of Rights until 1988 when he went freelance. He's retired since, so he's not active anymore. I understand he doesn't even accept speaking engagements because, man, oh, man, is this guy an absolutely compelling speaker. And um, so bear in mind that what you're about to hear precedes 9-11 by eight years and our most recent global financial crisis by 16 years. And I got a number of clips from him. And I have to tell you, like, this is like one of my other clips I got off of tape. It's got a bit of a hiss to it, so don't be adjusting your radios because um, I think the, the words come through pretty clear and are certainly compelling when, you, when, when he gets going. And we'll be back after this to continue our discussion on conspiracy theories. Now, the subject that I've been given to speak on is the question of the New World Order and what it is. And I think the title is The New World Order, Seduction or Solution. And that is a very provocative address because the New World Order is hardly known amongst a whole lot of people. Now, the New World Order has really only just appeared as far as the general public is concerned. Most people have never heard of it until we had a war in the Middle East against Saddam Hussein and there were major speeches made by President Bush and also by the Prime Minister of Australia at that time, Bob Hawke, that the coalition of forces that had been built together to wage war over the future of Kuwait in the Middle East was part of a program for a new world order. So if you ask the average person, what do you understand by the New World Order, they would say, presumably it means a coalition of military forces that uh, comes together for a particular action at a particular time. Now that is true. That is part of the New World Order program. But that part of the New World Order program really is uh, only one facet of a very broad program that has been unfolding for a long period of time. It uh, started, the idea of this started right back in the middle of last century, 1848, which is 145 years ago when a very small book appeared that certainly changed the whole course of human events, a little book called The Manifesto of the Communist Party, written by a man buried in London now in Highgate Cemetery, Karl Marx, which talked about a worldwide revolution and it finished with the words that said the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can only be attained by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose with their chains. Well, the ideas expressed in that little book lay in gestation for the remainder of the 19th century and came together in 1917 in the middle of the first great catastrophe of this century, the First World War, when one year before the war ended, a cattle train moved through Germany containing revolutionaries who were unleashed into the Soviet Union 
and promoted the second overthrow that had taken place in that year. The October Revolution, under the guiding hand of a man called Lenin, established the first communist place anywhere in the world. And from there, that architect, and he was a genius, he might have been an evil genius, but he was a genius, the architect of the communist movement set his sights on the final goal, which he was quite clear ultimately was to be a world program. And Gorbachev was the man who was picked to present the new image of communism to the West in order to provide the base where the whole Soviet bloc could be brought into the new world order that was being prepared. And he was undone by one lonely individual living in the United States, whose name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he probably, more than anybody else, has shaped what is happening in the Soviet Union today. Solzhenitsyn was a man who was born at the, at the peak of that Stalinist period. He was brought up through communist training schools. He was taught to spurn the, the, any idea of a creator or a god. He was absolutely convinced that dialectical materialism and scientific socialism was the way the world would ultimately evolve to some shining destiny. He moved into the army and became an officer. But then he began to come face to face both with questions relating to freedom and questions relating to the spiritual side of man. And he began to speak out on his disagreement, his growing disagreement with the establishment inside the communist bloc. And the price for doing that was to be isolated or tortured or imprisoned and he ended up doing eight and a half years in a slave labor camp in this new... He, th this was going on, the latter part of Solzhenitsyn's period at the time when Gorbachev was preparing to come to power and bring the Soviet bloc into the New World Order. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we're talking about the New World Order in the second half of our show today, and that was Jeremy Lee speaking to a packed coliseum of people in Australia back in 1993. We'll hear a little more from him a little later in the show. Now, one of the big questions he asked and, and went into was the whole issue of freedom and the spiritual side of man. Interesting he got into that. And as soon as I hear that subject come up, and especially, you know, as a pair, those two subjects, I always think of Scottish philosopher John McMurray because he talks in those terms very much. And um, so I went back even further in time. I'm Jeremy Lee was 1993. John McMurray, we can go back to 1932 and back to 1949, which is the first place I want to start. Before I get into what he had to say about what the big changes in the world are that, that were coming in his time. He basically was talking about a new world order as well in an essay that he called Contemporary Conflicts. We didn't have the term new world order then. And John McMurray visited Ontario back in 1949. He, of course, is a uh, 
um, uh, a philosopher um, from Scotland, and he was speaking at a lecture at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, 61 years ago. And he said there during that lecture, and I quote, there are two ways in which freedom has been achieved and extended in the world. I just want to say this before we get into the New World Order thing, because it's important to have this, this prerequisite here. And he says the two ways are, one, the moralization of desire, which controls the ends of action, which we would call religion or ethics, and two, the control of the means of action through the increase of power, which is called politics. Okay? So basically, you can either control yourself or be controlled by someone else, if you're being that naughty, okay? And um, this is sort of why I've always argued, Robert, that politics and religion are cut from the same cloth, whether they work together or in opposition. Um, in this context, I would agree with McMurray that the essential issue is not politics versus and religion and or, you know, but rather reality versus unreality, reason versus irrationality, and morality versus immorality in both fields of human discourse. That's generally always McMurray's theme, too. In politics, the proper operative principle is consent. In religion and morality, it is freedom and choice. McMurray sees the benefit of religion and morality as being fellowship and friendship, while the social benefit of the politic is justice. So he writes, quote, Clearly the task of politics becomes easier and its success becomes fuller in proportion to the inner unity of the society for which it prescribes. The degree to which the members of a society are conscious of their fellowship decides the shape of the task which is set for politics. And I'm thinking Mideast already when I'm thinking about what he's saying here. And he writes that we're apt to think that, that politics is the exercise of power and that the state works through compulsion and constraint. After all, the state has the right to use force to secure obedience to its commands. But this fact, however, is easily misunderstood. The purpose of the state is the elimination of the use of force in human intercourse. We arrange, therefore, that if force must be used, it shall be used only by the state. Nor do we stop there. We go on to secure that it shall be difficult for the state to use force, that it shall be used even by the state only after due process of law and only as a last resort when all else fails. The intention of politics is not the use of force, but the elimination of force and the achievement of freedom through justice. Now, that paragraph right there could be a Freedom Party statement, couldn't it? Yeah, that could have come out of your mouth. Yeah. Which it just did. And this was written, did, and it was written, like, almost 100 years ago. But yeah. dictatorship is all, always undesirable, writes McMurray. It is always a confession of failure and a threat to freedom. But history shows us that men can make it inevitable. So let us remember this. Democracy as we know it is not of itself a guarantee of freedom. Far less is it to be identified with freedom. However, democratic institutions are an essential condition of political freedom. And now he gets into the meat of the, of the New World Order, which he didn't ever hear that term. But he says, we're beginning a new chapter in the history of human development. The change is of such an extent that every country is involved in it. It is so profound, there's no level of human experience which is untouched by it. If we seek its causes too locally or too superficially, we shall fail to understand it, and our efforts to cope with it will be unsuccessful, leaving us with a sense of helplessness and despair. Kind of like how we feel today after talking about 9-11, right? Mm -hmm. But if we grasp our situation in its entirety, which is a full context, and have a courage that can match it, we shall realize that it is full of hope and opportunity, 
and it moves toward a great emancipation. For its goal is the unification of the world in a common life. Okay? And then he talks about a transformation of moral attitude. He says, in the Middle Ages, and I would add, and with conservatives today, <laughs> the idea of rightness was associated with the past, and so with the authority which acted as the guardian of tradition. The right way to do anything was to do it as it had always been done. The church was the custodian and interpreter of tradition. In the Renaissance, however, and increasingly thereafter, we find men associating the idea of rightness with the future, not the past, and believing that the right way to do things is to do them better than they had been done before. From this new moral outlook sprang the distinguishing characteristics of the modern period, the special preoccupation with freedom as the right of the individual to live his own life in his own way. Unfortunately, while the modern world has cherished the idea of freedom as its goal, in practice it concentrated its efforts upon an increase in power. In the economic field, this has made it an era of capitalism. In the political field, it has been the period of an increase of political power as a matter of public policy. Boy, do we see that in our governments today, eh, Robert? So the power achieved is utilized for a further expansion of power. Power serves its own end, essentially. Meanwhile, world trade has been expanding. The effect of it was to extend the cooperative interdependence of men in society until it included the whole world. The power and wealth of the advanced nations, meaning capitalists, increased rapidly, but at the expense of a, of a rapidly increasing dependence for food and raw materials upon peoples beyond their borders. At the outbreak of war in 1914, mankind had already become one society of interdependent cooperating individuals, end quote. And I think that's why, Robert, when we originally got into the whole idea of freedom and, and even Freedom Party, we quickly realized to be an advocate of freedom, you couldn't do a battle like that locally, can you? You can't just say, you can't just have freedom in Ontario and nowhere else, right? It's also sort of an underlying thing of, uh, of the communist revolution yes. was that it had to be global or it, it wouldn't to. work. You can't, well, it won't work even if it were. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's the funny thing. But, but capitalism and freedom are not that way. But, you know, if your goal is power, then provincialism and local tyranny is very possible. That's the difference, yes, right? Yes. And that's what happens, and that's how it happens. And it's very desirable by those who locally benefit from that power. So, you know, welcome to the Ontario of today, and probably in your neighborhood, too, if you don't live in Ontario. Now, I, I remember actually liking the term, think globally, act locally. Remember that? Because mm -hmm. I thought when it came to freedom, you, you couldn't do otherwise. Unfortunately, the bad guys are using the same phrase, <laughs> which is why they win anytime they compete with those who only think locally. As a matter of fact, the bad you know. guys often um, take over the phrases, uh, good phrases like that. For example, yes. Akman, uh, what's his name? Uh, Iranian president Ahmadinejad or whatever it yeah. is. Uh, he's just basically talking about <laughs> uh, freeing the world and, uh, uh, you know, getting rid of tyranny. Right. <laughs> Out of his mouth is uh, just quite laughable. But again, you know, it's that local attitude, provincial, nationalism, whatever you want to call it. So we're going to take a break, quick break again, and here once again is Jeremy Lee from his 1993 speech in Australia on the subject of the New World Order, talking in our first uh, selection about the coming debt bomb. Now remember, this is 1993. And in our second selection about the United Nations plan for the new social order for the world. And we'll carry on right from here. One of the results of the establishment of the United Nations was a decision at a conference in 1944 of Bretton Woods that the nation would trade in two types of money. 
One was the British pound and one was the American dollar. British pound has collapsed as an international reserve currency. So up until quite recently, the American dollar has been about the only money that nations have traded in. And the American dollar is now in deep, deep trouble for, for two or three reasons. First of all, that if you examine the history of the United States, say over the last 50 years, it has issued out in the form of loans and grants and aid programs and Marshall plans and Lend-Lease plans, so many trillions and trillions of dollars that nobody quite knows how many exist. And if ever they began to come in in the form of a concerted demand, the thing would collapse. You can find them under beds in Latin America. You can find them as a preferred currency in Russia today to the ruble. You can find them in the Middle East or Indonesia or even Australia. The second thing is that inside the United States, their own internal debts threaten to destroy them. To give you some picture, this year in March, just the federal debt, not the state debts or the city debts or the private debts or the mortgages, just the federal debt of one government in America hit $4 trillion. you've gone through all that, the decision-making process for economics would move into the United Nations. The second part deals with the social order. It is the new value systems whereby men and women shall live in the world of the 21st century. And these are now being transposed out of the United Nations into every country that will accept them or endorse them or ratify them in the form of treaties and conventions. We have hundreds of them now into Australia. They always come out sounding absolutely beautiful. The United Nations Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination on the Grounds of Sex or Race or Marital Status or Religion. People say, what's wrong with that? Sounds perfectly logical to me. Who wants to discriminate anyhow? Forgetting that the original definition of discriminate was to choose. Why should anybody want to discriminate against women or men or people of another color or people who have a different faith system? And the fair go reaction of the Australian is, that sounds reasonable to me. We are a reasonable people. So they ratify that convention which comes in and is translated into law and by the time it begins to work, it produces the exact opposite of what you thought it meant. It is now illegal to go to your own local newspaper and place a little advertisement in the classified section saying, I would like a married couple to come and work on my little farm or in my business. Because the word married is a form of discrimination against unmarried people. Is that what you thought it meant when you first heard it? Is that what you thought, Robert? <laughs> we know different now, don't we? Yeah, something in theory is, uh, yes. in practice, completely different. But again, there we have the whole instrument of the United Nations. Uh, you know, John McMurray uh, commented that an interdependent world requires an instrument of justice 
because you know if you're trading with people in other countries you want to make sure you're you're on the same same level mm -hmm. if and as he writes he says if my relations with others are to be just beyond the narrow circle of my direct acquaintances i must depend upon a system of law which automatically adjusts the effect of my activity so that no injustice arises anywhere so in his time john mcmurray basically uh, you know, he celebrated the, the founding of the League of Nations, which was the precursor to the United Nations, and he saw it as a great move forward in, you know, in, in the history of freedom, that maybe we could advance freedom this way. And, of course, uh, that's not exactly what happened. The uh, United Nations seems to be advancing a lot of the kind of things that Jeremy Lee was just talking about, international socialism. Just look at the membership of the United Absolutely. Nations. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that McMurray comments, he says, there's no effective world government against which rebellion can be directed. As a consequence, one ends up with modern conflicts always being civil wars in a world which is already one society. And, you know, that's so true, what we see happening today. But again, he concludes, freedom is not our private possession. We can preserve our freedom only by sharing it. So I guess he's saying use it or lose it. And this brings me to my point when last week I brought up the issue that philosophy itself is the great conspirator. And just to reiterate and then expand, you know, depending entirely on your metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical premises, your actions are determined by those beliefs. So that when many people operating on the same philosophy seem therefore to be acting in unison with regard to some purpose or goal, those who don't understand the philosophical force behind what they're seeing instead see a conspiracy. Faith and Force, Destroyers of the Modern World, was the name of one infamous essay written by Ayn Rand. When reality and reason are no longer the arbiters in any dispute between two people, then violence is the inevitable result. People driven by unreality, mysticism, and force will naturally conspire to destroy things, including life itself. People who operate on reality, reason, self, and consent will naturally conspire to create things and to protect human dignity and life. Each opposite act is a simple philosophical consequence of operating on opposite principles. And this is the contrast that we can visibly see between, let's say, Israel and the Arab nations surrounding it today. Conspiracy types see the disparity between these two, these two societies, which are so closely lo located to each other, as being an issue of injustice and inequality. The Israelis must be doing something to keep the societies around them down so much. So they're the bad guys, while the Arab nations just can't help themselves because they're so downtrodden by that geographically tiny little dot of relative freedom in their midst called Israel. <laughs> I noticed uh, Salim Mansour's article on August 21st in London Free Press, Don't Blame the Problems of the Arab World on Israel. Of course, Salim's been a guest on the show a couple times. And he writes, an objective consideration of the huge disparity in size and population between the Arab world and Israel should dispel the drivel that the world has been fed that the Arabs are the underdog in a colonial struggle against Jews as a colonizing people. The reverse disparity between Israelis and Arabs is the tremendous human achievement of the former as a free people, and in contrast, when measured against the sullen reality of the Arab world, which is just about at the bottom of the UN Human Development Index, despite its resources available. All the oil in the world, and they're poor. How, how is that even possible, <laughs> Because right? of philosophy, that's because how it's Because it's possible. the philosophy that does it, exactly. Here, too, Arabs, Muslims, and their apologists in the West will fault Israelis for the collective failure of the Arab world. 
It is as if the plight of Palestinian occupation by the Israelis explains the Sudanese civil wars and the genocide in Darfur or the savage killings inside Algeria or the long list of atrocities, gender oppression, humiliation of religious minorities, wars, military dictatorship, and with no end in sight of violence and murder in the name of Islam across the Arab world. It is sheer absurdity to hold Israelis responsible for the utterly dysfunctional nature of the Arab world, end quote. So, you know, I'm sitting here asking conspiracy. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? It's no conspiracy. It's the power of philosophy in action. It is a demonstration of what can and does happen to any society that operates on faith and force. Just like Ayn Rand wrote, it's just obvious and not on reason and consent. So I think it's time we stopped believing in make-believe conspiracy theories and start to believe in some of the real ones, because, Robert, they're all out to get us, let me tell you. They're all a little more important as well. This yes. whole notion of the two different differing philosophies between the Platonic and the Aristotelian. It's and much just, more important. Yeah, and, 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 you know, globalism, of course, can only have a meaning if we're talking about some process of uniting the world under a single common jurisdiction. So, you know, if I were to answer, do I support it, the New World Order, I would say, yeah, if it were freedom. No, if it were anything else. So I support global freedom, not global government control, organization, or management. I support global capitalism, not global socialism, fascism, anarchism, Marxism, determinism, or any other ism you might want to add to it. And of course, I support individual rights, not group rights. And I think those are the conspiracies that we should work towards. And Robert, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we'll leave you and hopefully we'll be back talking about something other than conspiracy theaters or theories. So until then, we hope you'll join us again when we continue our journey in the right direction. You know what to do. Be right, stay right, act right, and be right back here. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be Shall we proceed? Doctor, I have a confession. I lied to you. I went up on that water tower because it was hot and I wanted some fresh air. Go on. Go on. That's all. That can't be all. It is. The higher you go, the cooler it gets. And it worked. I felt great. Why didn't you tell me this in the first place? I was afraid you wouldn't believe me. Everybody likes complex answers these days. They want to know what kind of flower, how much rain, what brand of fertilizer. Oh, I've been guilty of it myself. When I see a building, I check if the foundation is level, how the rivets are set, if the girders are strong. But whenever I do that, I miss something. What? The beauty of the building. Beauty becomes nuts and bolts, hot rivets and cold steel. I can't accept a building for itself. I have to poke and probe, hunt and peck. Yes, yes, I know. I've lost sight of the basic things. I can't see the building for the marble, the windows for the glass. The flower for the fertilizer. Go on, go on. Why can't I smile at a building? Forget the fertilizer and look at the flower. What's wrong with me, doctor? You're too wrapped up in your work. 